0: listening to a sermon from Sojourn Church in Fairfax, Virginia. We hope that this is an encouragement to you no matter where you find yourself on your spiritual journey. If you're not already, we would encourage you to connect to your local church. If you'd like to find out more about Sojourn in particular, please visit our website at sojournfairfax.com. May God bless you now as you listen to the preaching of his word. All right, all right. Let's go ahead and uh, get started this morning. It's good to gather with you on this Sunday. Starts a little, uh, humid in here. Uh, The AC hopefully will be turned on in the school at some point in the near future. Uh, And thanks for coming out on a rainy, dreary day. My name is Justin. one of the pastors here. This is your first time gathering with us. It's a joy uh, to have you here this morning, and I hope I get a chance to meet you after the service today. But before we jump into God's Word this morning, let's just go to Him in prayer and ask Him to bless this time. So would you pray with me? God, we give you thanks this morning that with you we're able to come before you with anything and everything that's going on in our lives, and to know that before you we can be fully known and fully loved. God, sometimes we wrestle with that reality, but we thank you, God, that you've made it abundantly clear throughout your word from beginning to end that you're a God who is merciful and gracious, full of patience and loving kindness, and You're just steadfast towards us, God, and so we give you thanks for that. And I pray as we open up your word this morning that we would receive it as your word to us. And so I ask that your Holy Spirit would fill us, that your Holy Spirit would give us ears to hear and eyes to see, minds and hearts to receive, and that as we sit and take in the preaching of your word this morning, God, that it would be like a a great meal that we be satisfied in you this morning because you are the living God who speaks to us. And so God, we give you thanks for that. And we pray this morning that as we open your word that you would refresh our souls. God, I pray this morning that you would bring life in places of death. And Call us, God. Help us listen. Help us to respond this morning. And we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, this morning we're going to begin a new sermon series, and we are going to be in the book of Ruth for the next few weeks. And so if you need a Bible this morning, if you raise your hand... Uh, Matt will bring a Bible around to you. I'd really love for you to have this in front of you. So if you don't have a Bible or it's not on your phone, just keep your hand up until Matt comes and finds you because I want you to track with me as I walk through this first part of this story this morning. Ruth is in the Old Testament. It's at the beginning of the Old Testament. Feel free to use your table of contents if you need it. Uh, It's a short book and so I don't want you to flip past it. In some ways, the book of Ruth is is part biography and part historical narrative. It's important in the life of God's people as he seeks to communicate truth to them. But as we look at this story that we're going to walk through over these next few weeks, what we see see is that it's a story that takes place in real time with real people who are dealing with real issues in their lives. And it is, in fact, laid out like a story. It has a beginning, a middle, and an end. It's filled with all kinds of different themes and different things going on within it. Things like tragedy and uncertainty, scandal, love, and grace. And so we're going to spend the next five Sundays walking through this story together. But this isn't just a nice story. It's God's Word to us. All of Scripture, we believe, is inspired by God And so that means it's for our instruction, it's for our encouragement, it's for our edification, it's for our transformation. And though the book of Ruth isn't a doctrinal treatise, it's full of truth about God. And and though it's not an exposition on the gospel, it is full of good news of grace and redemption. And though it doesn't speak the name of Jesus, he's all over the place in this story. And so our time in Ruth is going to feel different than going through a book like Philippians, which we had just been in. But my hope is, as we walk through this, is that God will use it in your life to teach you to teach me more about himself. And in light of that, to teach us more about ourselves. And through this sermon series, I want us all to rest in the reality that God sees and God redeems He sees and he redeems, and that as we understand and rest in that truth, that it would lead us to awe of God. It would lead us to worship. It would lead us to peace and hope and new life. And So to begin, our goal for today, as we get into chapter one of Ruth, is to see that God often uses our rebellion. God often uses our suffering to lead us to return home to hope. See, a common experience of every person that all of us have in the midst of our life is this rhythm of coming and going, of coming and going. We go away, we come back again. We go on vacation, we come back home again. We go visit friends or family, we come back again. We go to school or work, we come back again. And the cycle plays out throughout our lives. Well, as we jump into Ruth 1 this morning, what we see in this story is a significant going away and coming back. And it's one that has implications for us as well. So whether you are very familiar with the book of Ruth, this story of Ruth, or you're hearing it for the very first time this morning, no matter where you find yourself on your spiritual journey, my hope is is that God would allow your heart and your mind to be opened to what he wants to do in you and through you as you receive his word this morning. And so with that, let's jump into Ruth chapter one and may God bless the preaching of his word Ruth chapter 1 is 22 verses, and it can really be broken down into three sections, which you probably have highlighted in your Bible with some subheadings there. Verses 1 through 5, then 6 through 18, then 19 through 22. And so those are going to serve as kind of our our points for the sermon, our anchors for how we're going to walk through this story. In verses 1 through 5, we see a theme of walking away, first point. Second point, verses 6 through 18, we see a grasping for hope. And then lastly, in verses 19 through 22, we see a returning home. And so let's walk through this and seek to understand and apply it to our lives. Our first point, walking away, is in verses 1 through 5. Let me read them for us this morning. It says, In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab. He and his wife and his two sons... The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went to the country of Moab and remained there, but Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Kilion died so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Now there's a lot going on in these first five verses that I want us to slow down a bit and make sure we get the significance of what the author is seeking to communicate to us. The author places this story in time and at a particular place. He says, In the days when the judges ruled, and it's in Bethlehem of Judea, a small town just south of Jerusalem, But the point of him mentioning this to us isn't just to give us a time and location. He's seeking to communicate something more significant to us in this. See, the time of the judges was often a time of chaos for God's people. In fact, the book of Judges, which comes immediately before the book of Ruth, ends. Look at Just flip one page back. Look at verse 25. At the very end of Judges, 21-25, it says this, In those days there was no king in Israel, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. After the book of Ruth comes 1 Samuel, and 1 Samuel is a story of the emerging of two kings. And so Ruth is kind of a hinge story placed right in the middle of the book of Judges and the book of 1 Samuel that's seeking to communicate something important about the history of God's people, but not just for the sake of history, but to encourage and help us and call us back to him. See, God's desire for his people all along has been that he would be king and that his people would follow him as king. But when God's people entered into the promised land, it didn't take long for them to rebel against his lordship, rebel against his kingship over them, and they rebelled against him over and over and over again, and we see that throughout the book of Judges. And it's in the midst of this that the author zeroes in on this one family, from this one tribe. We see verse 2, the Ephrathites, in this one city, Bethlehem. a, A place which means house of bread. But in this house of bread, there is no bread. Famine has come to the land. Now this is not just due to weather patterns, but the sovereignty of God. He's using this famine to get the attention of his people who have strayed away from him, who are doing whatever they want, whatever they think is right in their own eyes. He's seeking to get the attention of his people that they might repent and turn again to him. But notice what happens here. He's seeking to give this wake-up call to his people. Instead of turning to God in the place that he has called his people to be, Elimelech takes his family and he walks away. And he doesn't just go anywhere, he immigrates to Moab, which is modern-day Jordan. It's a pagan place that's worshiping false gods. It's essentially an enemy of the people of God. Now, we may look at this and think, well, yeah, but what else were they supposed to do? I mean, there's famine in the land. They needed food, they needed sustenance, they needed to take care of their family. This famine caused, maybe even demanded, that they move to Moab. They needed to take matters into their own hands to get what they needed. But is that really the case? I mean, Isn't it easy for us to justify our actions? Because God isn't doing what we want him to do in the time we want him to do it and in the way we want him to do it. When maybe all along the Lord is up to something else, we can often become so focused on our own story that we miss how the story His story is unfolding before us and around us. Now, in the West, we often don't consider the meaning of names very much anymore. But in biblical times and ancient traditions, that's a very uh, popular and ongoing and regular thing to take place. In fact, uh, if I'm remembering correctly, I don't have it in my notes, the two sons' names mean uh, weakling and uh, I think pitiable or something like that. Like, can you imagine naming your, this is my son. Weakling. That's not setting him up for good things in his life. But that aside, Elimelech's name, though, means God is king. It means God is king. But Elimelech's life rejects the meaning of his name. He wants to take control of his life, he wants to take control of his circumstances. So he essentially rejects God instead of turning to God in the midst of his need. And he does so in the name of taking care of his family. He's an example of Judges 21-25. Let me ask you this morning, where might you be doing that in your own life right now? Or tempted to do that in your own life? Even with good intention. Seeking out comfort or seeking out control apart from God because you've grown tired of waiting on Him. Tired of waiting for Him to do what you think He should be doing. See, Elimelech chose the road to Moab, which ended up being a road to nowhere. And trial has already greatly impacted this family, and now tragedy assaults them. And it happens in three devastating blows. In verse 3, the author bluntly states, but Elimelech dies. Then in verse 4, we see maybe there's some hope. The sons marry, they're going to have this a wife now and hopefully have children and their family's going to continue to grow and Naomi will have her sons and her daughters-in-law and grandchildren to continue to care for her and be with her to continue the family line but they marry Moabite women which God's law tells them not to do because those people worship false gods see this family has already compromised much but the reality for all of us is when we start down the path of disobedience the road is paved pretty smoothly with little resistance once we get going. They marry, but this doesn't go well either. Did you notice in the text, they live there for 10 years. They don't have any children. It's our second tragedy. They're dealing with infertility. Now, as a a bit of a side note, God often uses infertility throughout the scriptures to carry about his purpose, his plans for his people. And we're going to see that unfold more in the book of Ruth. But at this moment, at this point in time, it's a tragedy for this already broken family. And if that isn't challenging enough, the third tragedy strikes, verse 5, both the sons die. And this first section ends with a focus on Naomi, who at this point isn't even named. Look at the end of verse 5, the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. This is devastating. At this point in time, a childless widow would have been in a really bad spot, having no provision, no way to care for herself, no prospect of of getting married and having a, a family or having children. She's essentially destitute in this moment. See, in the midst of the trial of famine, instead of turning to God, this family walked away and it ended in death and further desperation. And the author wrote this story to God's people, not while they were in the middle of the same difficulty. He wrote it to God's people to look back on what had taken place, that they might be exhorted and encouraged toward faith and faithfulness no matter what's going on in their life, what's going on in your life. See, this first section, a picture of walking away, it would have been a sobering reality for the people, the original audience who read this, and it's a sobering reality for us now. Because all of us find ourselves on a journey. All of us are sojourning in a wilderness of sorts. And we know that Jesus has come, And if your faith is is in Him, if you've trusted in Christ for who He is and what He's done, that He's gone to the cross to take on all of your sin and your shame, and you know and believe that one day He will come again to make all things new, then you have hope. But as we talked about two weeks ago on Easter, we live in this now and this not yet, a life intermingled with both joy and grief. Some of us have chosen paths that lead to difficulty, like a Limelech. And others of us have had paths of difficulty chosen for us, like Orpah and Ruth at this point. And often, as we try and look at our lives, it's some mixture of both. But no matter how you got in the circumstances you are in or will be in, all of them shape us. All of them provide opportunities to walk toward God instead of walking away from Him. But our temptations will be the same. We can be tempted to pick the land of compromise instead of the land of promise. And maybe right now things aren't going the way you want in your life. Maybe you're experiencing real loss in your life right now. And Maybe right now you're tempted to go looking for solutions on your own all the while God is calling you to himself. And that's exactly what we see happen in this story as it continues to unfold. See, in the first five verses, this story has gone really fast. At least a decade has gone by. But when we get to the next section, verses 6 through 18, the author slows down and has this dialogue that takes place, this interaction that takes place. And it leads to our second anchor, our second point, grasping for hope. Look at verse 6. It says, after all this has taken place, then she, talking about Naomi, arose with her daughter-in-law to return from the country of Moab, For she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. Elimelech and his family had walked away from the place God had promised. They had walked away from trusting in God, but God had not walked away from his people. God had not walked away from his promised place. He gave them food. And Naomi hears this good news and decides that she must return to her God and to his people. Now, here's where we need to pay attention to something critical in this story, something that shows up in this story of going away and coming back again. The word return, or some variation of that word, is used multiple times just in this first chapter here. And it's the Hebrew word most often used in the Old Testament for returning to God or for repentance. then that Its core, repentance, is always twofold. It's a turning away from our rebellion. It's turning away from our ignoring who God is, turning away from our sin and trying to go our own way and turning again to God in faith, trusting in Him. And it involves a change of mind and a change of heart. But see, it's in the midst of tragedy that we see the grace of God, it, it was because of suffering, it was because of trial that led Na- Naomi to turn again to God, to turn again to his promised place and people. Say, Naomi had come to the end of herself and was left with nothing except the only thing she truly needed, her faithful God. And our experience is the same. It's in moments of difficulty that we, as we've said before, realize that Jesus is all we really need, Because Jesus is all we really have. In verse 7, we see Naomi sets out with her daughters-in-law to go back to Bethlehem. But then we see verses 8 and 9, that somewhere along the way, in the midst of kind of the haze of grief and confusion and these kind of glimmers of of hope and faith that we can all experience when we're walking through difficulty, Naomi kind of clears the cobwebs away and says, Wait a minute, what in the world? What's going on? You, You girls shouldn't come with me. You should go back home. Go back to your mom and your dad. Go back to them. Maybe then you can have a future. Maybe then you can have a family. She even seeks to bless them and say that the Lord bless you. May he grant you and find rest to have a family. And in the midst of this, she has faith. And it may be a little bit of of maybe a a feeble faith, a weak faith. She believes that even as they go back to this land that worships false gods, that the one true God will still bless these non-believing women. But they refuse to go. They declare to her, no, listen, we're going to return with you. But now Naomi gets more insistent and more dramatic. Look at verses 11 through 13. It says, but Naomi said, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. She has no idea why they would stay with her when she has nothing to offer to them. But in the midst of her grief, even in her turning a bit towards God again, it doesn't cross her mind that yes, she has nothing physical to offer them, but she has the one who holds all things together to offer to them. But in this moment, she doesn't do that. The girls weep. Orpah relents and walks away and out of the pages of Scripture. But verse 14 says Ruth clings to her. Ruth isn't going anywhere. Verse 15, we see Naomi still doesn't understand why she's hanging around. She says, look, see your sister-in-law. Go with her. Go back the way that she's going. She even tells her to return to her gods. But Ruth patiently and emphatically makes it clear that she isn't going anywhere. Look at verses 16 and 17. These may be the most, some of the most well-known verses in this story. It says this, But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. Now, this is an amazing thing that Ruth is communicating here, and it isn't just because it sounds fun or poetic or would be nice scripture to be read at your wedding or hung on a wall. Right? There's significance in what she's saying here. This is a picture of hope in the midst of darkness. It's a picture of conversion. It's a picture of new life. See, what Ruth is saying is, Naomi, I'm not going anywhere. I'm going to be loyal to you. I'm going to be buried with you. You are my family. And sometimes in the midst of difficulty in our life, isn't it nice just to have one, maybe two friends that walk with us and say, I'm not going anywhere. I'm sticking with you in this. But what she's saying to her isn't, hey, I'm, just, I'm not just clinging to you. My hope isn't in you, Naomi. What she's trying to declare is I'm grasping to hope in your God. Naomi, you may not have hope in him right now, but I do. See, Ruth is making a confession of faith, and she's using covenantal language, the covenantal language of God himself, who says multiple times throughout Scripture, I will be your God, and you will be my people. So Ruth isn't plagiarizing God. She's claiming his promises. She's saying yes and amen to the promises of God. Yes, God, you will be my God, and I will be a part of your people what an amazing reality. We see this transformation start to take place in Ruth's life. So how does Naomi respond? We might think, well, man, she's probably be really excited about this, but the author doesn't record her as saying anything. Maybe having Ruth with her would be a constant reminder of her loss, if her family's Lack of trust in the providence of God. Maybe she didn't know why Ruth would be very interested in serving her God when she's experienced all this heartache and tragedy in her life. Or maybe Naomi's lack of response isn't some kind of silent harshness, but a quiet peace, a resting, a gratefulness that Ruth is choosing her God, who she's seeking to turn back to as well. But whatever's going on inside of Naomi's heart at this point, one thing is certain she is complex. and she's a conflicted person. She's revived in her faith, yet at the very same time is struggling to believe. But that's okay, because it isn't all on her. God is at work. As we walk through this story, we're going to see God's providence. This story is dripping with providence. It's okay because God is at work. He's always at work to bring about redemption, always at work to bring about transformation for his glory and our good. And he gives opportunities to repent of our rebellion, opportunities to renew our belief that he is faithful to his plans and his purposes. See, even in Naomi's grief and at times her lack of faith in the faithfulness of God, Ruth still wants to know and serve her God. Listen, God always pursues you in the midst of your sin. He he doesn't ask you to clean yourself up first. He doesn't say, why don't you get your life together? You at least need to look a little bit better on the outside, look, look like you have your life together. No, God pursues you in the midst of your sin, and God will use you in spite of your sin. He will use you in spite of disobedience in your life. It's an amazing reality we see take place here. Now, that's not an excuse for sin. It's not like, well, great, I guess it doesn't matter how I live then. No, it's a picture of God's grace towards you. It's a cause for us to rejoice. Because what that declares to us is that God is faithful even when we're not. So God might very well use your struggles with sin. He might use your suffering to bring other people to himself. See, it's a gospel secret that we'll see play out more in this story that death is the way to life. That death is the way to life. See, death worked in Naomi and there was real and right grief, but it was through that that new life worked in Ruth. It's because of loss, it's because of tragedy that Ruth turned to the living God. So let me ask you, What might be going on in your life right now that God wants to do the same thing? Where are you struggling? Where are you suffering right now? Where God wants to use that in your life to bring people to Himself, where He wants to make much of His own name, where you can stand up and testify that this is your God who is faithful and true, even when you don't know what's going on. Where is God calling you to grasp for hope in Him? Friends, we have to see that this story is a reminder to us, even now that God is a God full of grace, not just for one group of people, but for all people. And there are people all around you right now who need redemption, people all around you right now who need new life through Christ. God is still very much in the business of redeeming people, out of death to life, out of darkness into light. And Limelech and his family, they walked away, But through tragedy, there's an awakening, a a grasping for hope. See, Ruth's declaration in this story, in verses 16 through 17, is really the turning point of this story. We've been going down to despair, but she declares her faith in God, and so now we're going up towards hope. And it moves forward in anticipation with our third point, returning home, that we see in verses 19 through 22. Look at verses 19 and 20. It says this, So the two of them... Naomi and Ruth went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? And she said to them, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara. And they head back to the place that Naomi and her family had left so many years before. And they arrive in this town. It says the whole town is stirred. Did any of you grow up in small towns? Now, what happens in small towns, right? News or gossip travels quickly. Prayer requests, that's right. Let me tell you about somebody to pray for, and then you un- unload all the things that are going on in their life. It's just a mask for gossip, right? So they, these two ladies walk into town. It's been at least a decade since Naomi's been there, but people look at her and they're like, wait, what, what's going on? It says the whole town is stirred. It means the whole town is a buzz. People remember Naomi, but she's coming back changed. They see it on her face. They they see it in her worn-down body. They see that she's coming back empty and alone. She left with three men, her husband and two sons. Now she comes back by herself and with this Moabite woman. What in the world is going on? What's happened? Is this really Naomi, they say? So Naomi answers, it is, but it isn't. In fact, don't even call me by that name anymore, which means pleasant. Pleasant. Call me Mara, which means bitter. Look at the rest of verse 20 and 21. She says, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? She isn't embittered towards the Lord per se, but she's recognizing God's sovereignty in her life, in the bitter reality of her life that it's just difficult. It's difficult to swallow. It's difficult to digest. She's being very honest right now about how she's feeling about all that's happened. And I hope that you know that you can always be honest about what's going on in your life. Always honest in this community, always honest before the Lord. God's patient with you. He'll correct your heart, He'll correct your theology. I can graciously walk with you in that. But I love that Naomi is honest right here. She's honest and God is patient with her because God. Is at work. Notice she says she and her family went away, but the Lord has brought her back. The Lord has brought her back. But she says he brought her back empty. Has she forgotten who's with her? Has she forgotten the transformation that's taken place in Ruth? Has she forgotten Ruth's loyalty to her, commitment to her? Has she forgotten, as we'll find out soon, that she's inherited land? And isn't life confusing when we're in the midst of difficulty? Sometimes up seems like down and down seems like up. Everything, everything can be a jumble in our mind, and our hearts. Our emotions are all over the place. And grief is real. Grief is real and it's okay. Because God is always at work. Is our suffering sometimes caused by our sin? Yes, absolutely. But isn't that simple of an equation for Naomi. There's way more going on than that. There are real ramifications for our sin, real ramifications for our disobedience, for our rebellion, but what we see and will see is God is using all of this to pursue and redeem not just Naomi, but his broken people and his broken world. And the beginnings of it are right there in front of her face, We see it starting with this young widow whose life has been radically changed by the grace of God. It's just what this community needs. This town that's gone through famine sees this woman, these two women coming back to town. It's going to change that town. Sometimes all it takes is one person, one person coming to faith to transform a community. And sometimes all we need are things like simple food and like we said earlier, a few steadfast friends to remind us of God's grace that he is at work to dispel darkness. We see this in Ruth and we'll see it more in what's to come. This story begins with famine and the departure from Bethlehem, the house of bread. But look how this first chapter ends, verse 22. So, catch the word returned again. So Naomi returned. And Ruth, the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem, the house of bread, at the beginning of barley harvest. It, was, it begins with famine and going away, and it ends with harvest and a return home, a return home to hope. In the midst of darkness and despair, the faint rays of dawn are peeking over the horizon because God is always at work. It is a God who redeems and restores This verse, this story, this chapter is pregnant with hope and anticipation. The original audience would have read this and be like, oh my goodness, what's going to happen next? We'll come back next week and we'll roll through that. It's a story I'm excited to continue to walk through with you. See, Ruth is a going away and coming back story. And it's a part of the whole Bible. And all the scriptures is a going away and coming back story a story of unfolding redemption and restoration, a real-life story of returning home to hope. See, all of humanity has walked away from God. Like Elimelech, each of us has sought to go our own way. We've rejected God's authority in our life, choosing to be the, the captain of our own ship, the master of our own life, to try and make it on our own. But the results are disastrous or catastrophic. They, too, end in death but our God has not left us to death. He is God who brings life in places of death, just like he did with Ruth, just like he's doing in Naomi. See, the book of Ruth is a a microscopic kind of zeroing in on this redemptive planet, zeroing in on this important part of the larger story of redemption. The story of Ruth was for God's people then. It was to encourage them and give them hope, and it's still for God's people today to do the very same thing. Because see, all of the Bible is about Jesus. Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. No one can come to the Father except through him. He's the one that enables you to be reconciled to God, to be restored to God. And though Jesus' name isn't mentioned in this book, he is very much present and at play. See, the original audience would have known from this story that this line that's going to come throughout the story, this genie genealogy that's going to unfold before us is the line that the king that they had longed for would come from the author already gives us a hint of that when he mentions that this family are Ephrathites from Bethlehem of Judah but we know because we have all of the bible that this is the line from which the king we need has come and will come again Bethlehem Bethlehem means house of bread but we know that the very bread of life will come out of that same town that same place Elimelech left the promised land to find hope and he wound up empty, but Jesus left glory to bring hope and he gives it abundantly. Naomi and Ruth heard good news, but we've heard the greatest news. That Jesus has come to seek and to save the lost by laying down his very life for you, going to a cross, bearing your sin in your place in order to give you new life now and forever. Listen, everyone has a story. And all of us are in the midst of unfinished stories. But I have hope for all of us, no matter where you find yourself. I have hope for what God wants to do in you right now and in you as we walk through this story together over the next few weeks. Because just like Naomi, just like Ruth, God sees you and God cares for you. Every aspect of your life. And he made that abundantly clear in the good news of the gospel because he sent Jesus to rescue you friends, just like Naomi, just like Ruth, you have an unfinished story. What's going on in yours right now? What's going on in yours right now? Is God calling you to himself? Is he calling you to hope? Is he calling you home, back to the Father? Whether that's for the first time or the thousandth time in your life, is he calling you and are you listening? Will you respond today to his steadfast love and grace? We're going to come forward now and take communion. And we take communion every week together. Before you come forward this morning, before you eat the bread, a picture of Christ's body broken before for you, before you drink the cup, a picture of Christ's blood shed for you, I want to encourage you to take a minute, take a minute to really think and pray on the invitation to come to the Father. Again, whether that's for the first time or the thousandth time, we all wander. Maybe you've wandered this morning. Maybe you've wandered this week. Maybe it's been a long time since you've experienced the presence of God. Maybe you've never experienced his presence and his grace. So take a minute to do that. See, we take communion every week as we gather together as a church to call us back to the Father who gives grace upon grace. We take communion every week as a church to call us back to our Savior who laid down his life to make that possible. So take a minute, however long you need, before you take the elements, take some time to reflect, take some time to repent, to give thanks, take some time to come home to the one who will never let you go, and then take the bread, take the cup, and celebrate what Jesus has done. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, I'm so thankful that God brought you to gather with us this morning. I hope what you hear from this story is that God wants to offer and extend grace to you as well. And so instead of coming forward to take communion this morning, during that same time, I want you to reflect. I want you to respond. My encouragement, my invitation to you, which is the invitation of the Father's, that you would come to him today. Place your faith in Jesus, believing that he has come to rescue you and restore you and give you new life. And if you have questions about what that means or what that looks like, then we'd love to walk with you in that and encourage and help you know what it looks like to both know Christ and follow him. For those of you that will come forward, you can come to the tables at the front or the tables in the back. Tear off a piece of bread. Take a cup to drink. And what Christ, our Redeemer, has done for us will be spoken over you this morning. Let's pray. Father of mercy, we come before you this morning and we pray, would you give us mercy? God, would you give us grace upon grace? Call us to yourself. Call us back from wandering, wherever we've wandered. Maybe we've wandered A little bit. Maybe we've wandered a lot. God, I pray that you'd call us home today. That we'd return home to hope in you. Because we know who Christ is. We know what he's done for us. And God, I pray that right now that you'd bring life in the places of death that are part of this community. Whether that means someone that doesn't yet know you would come to truly know you this morning. They would jump in in faith, all in with Jesus. God, I pray that where there's other places of struggle and difficulty of wandering, would you call the rest of us back to you, that you'd bring new life, that you'd bring repentance, that you'd bring restored faith, a deeper joy, a greater hope, a surpassing peace. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would use our time in your word this morning to do that. And I pray that as we walk through this sermon series over the next few weeks, that you would continue to do a redeeming work because God, we know and we believe that you see and you redeem. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for Jesus. We pray all this in his name. Amen. Come forward whenever you're ready. Thank you so much for listening to this sermon from Sojourn Fairfax. If you have any questions, please feel free to email us at info at Go in peace.